Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On today's episode, I'm excited to welcome a guest who marries true artistry and glamour to the world of horror and spookiness. As a filmmaker, this individual delved into the realm of the otherworldly with the acclaimed short Tres Versos and proclaimed that drag was a form of rebellion with the autobiographical Boy in a Dress. As a performer, she's traveled the world and earned her rights as Queen of the Night when she became the first crowned winner of Dragula. Please welcome Vander Von Odd. Hey, schools. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Vander. Thank you for having me on. This is really exciting. I'm so excited to have you here. And before we get started, I understand today, uh, the day of this recording, is your birthday. It is. It is my birthday. And Los Angeles is very doomy and gloomy today, which is very appropriate. The city knows <laughs> and she's celebrating you. <laughs> I love it. But I'm just, I told you earlier, I've literally just been on the floor of my apartment building a dollhouse because that's what I fucking do on my birthday. <laughs> you know, I think we all need to celebrate in the matter most befitting of us. And you're doing it right. Doing it right. Just gluing one shingle at a time. It's great. <laughs> well, why don't we kick the show off the same way I start every show with the same first question I ask every guest, and it is simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. What's your connection to horror? Why do you think horror appeals to people? But why horror? Why horror? That's a question with many, many layers to it for, for me personally, because right off the bat, I was always in love with horror. My first memory of horror, I think I, was, I wasn't I was even two years old, and it's one of my first memories of life ever, and it, it was a, a kind of, not a horror film, it was like a campy horror comedy, but the horror scenes were the ones that stuck with me, so um, throughout my life I have found different answers to why horror like when I was a kid I was just intrinsically attracted to it and I had no idea why I just knew that it was fascinating and I couldn't get enough of it um so I think just some of us are just drawn to it naturally you know some of us have a more of a morbid curiosity than than others do I think it's the same reason a lot of people tune in to like really shocking news about horrifying things that happen around the world it's not because they're actually concerned about about, you know, someone getting, you know, completely pummeled by a train and torn to pieces. They just, you know, want to see like the fucked up footage of it because there's that morbid curiosity in, in all of us. Um, I think as I got a little bit older, I started to also realize that I grew more in love with horror because um, once I actually hit elementary school and I realized like I was not part of the group. <laughs> right. And I was like, the I was the weird one. I was the one that didn't fit in. It, it's, it felt natural to kind of identify with a lot of the characters that are in horror films, because usually the characters in the horror films, the, the, the bad guy per se, the antagonist, they're usually the outsider and the, the one that doesn't fit in. They're the weirdo. They're the one that's made fun of the one that isn't, you know, allowed to be part of the group. Um, and so it, Despite how awful the things those characters may do may be, it's hard not to feel a connection and a sympathy and um, an understanding for them when you when you feel the same way a lot of the times. And it's also hard not to connect with them when oftentimes those characters in the horror films are exacting their revenge. And that's what the film is about. You, right. I think in many ways we or at least I as like a young queer person that was just always ostracized and always made to feel different. I felt empowered by horror movie characters because they always got their revenge and I always felt like I, I wanted that, but I didn't quite have the balls to do it as a kid. Sure, but I think investing in the art and, you know, identifying with the art instead of like maybe putting that aggression into the world is the healthy and cathartic way of dealing with with those feelings. Uh, because 
you know, I think that's why a lot of people are drawn to, to this material. And I, there's always that argument when violent things in the real world happen. People are like, oh, well, they listened to death metal or they listened to horror or watched horror movies. And I always say, no, I think that oftentimes it's those, the other way around. It's, yeah, yeah, it's the other way around. Horror movies usually save people. It's sort of a release uh, if that's what you're watching them for. And I think um, you really hit a nail on the head that's been a constant theme throughout the run of Dead for Filth is that many people who exist as the outsider and the other connect to this genre because we see ourselves in it so much. Yeah. And it doesn't always have to be the monster. Like if you look at a lot of the uh, the horror movies of the 80s, like the final girls were always kind of like, the outsider, like, you know, mm-hmm. the not cool girl or yeah. the tomboy or whatever. And uh, they had to kind of make it through this kind of terrifying world as well. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of elements there that made sense. And also you see all the people you don't like. The right. people who always make fun of you are always the first ones to go in the horror film, which is also kind of satisfying. <laughs> well, I mean, who really wants to see a movie like a Friday the 13th movie where the quarterback of the football team is like victorious over Jason like they fucking get everything else mm-hmm. like no, they don't deserve this one fully <laughs> yeah. and I think a lot of films even films that aren't necessarily horror but have horror elements to them also serve as a reminder as to what happens when you do react and the way these characters do for example one of my favorites was always The Craft and it's so easy to identify with them because it's literally about four girls in high school who are treated like crap and what happens when they um, harness the power to kind of control their situation and when they come out on top and how they use that power and how um, it it destroys them in the end. It completely destroys them when they when they use all the power they have now to get back at the people that you know did them wrong. I, I you know that's all I wanted as a kid, but also you know I wasn't about to end up like Nancy thinking I was floating you know tied to right. a bed in a mental insti- institution. <laughs> well, at least she's comfy. Oh well, well you know. So you <laughs> you mentioned uh, that one of your first memories was actually of a horror film. It was, yeah. What was that film? Okay, so it wasn't really horror. It was very camp. It was very campy comedy with elements of horror. But it was a film called Wicked Stepmother, and it was Betty Davis's last film. And it's actually really terrible if you look back at it. It's like deliciously terrible. It's just so bad, but it's so fun to watch and. Um, Betty Davis plays this, you know, eight like 17th century witch living in Hollywood in like the 90s. And this old woman, very glamorous old woman who marries like very rich, well-to-do men and then uses her magic to eventually get rid of them and keep all the money. Um, and so right off the bat, you're combining witches, campy horror and Betty Davis, like every fag's dream. Right. <laughs> and um, my first... One of the very first memories I have of life was being in my parents' room, kind of like I was still sleeping in a crib because I was like a year and a half, maybe two at best, still sleeping in their room. And for whatever fucking reason, they were playing Wicked Stepmother with me in the room. And there's a scene in the end where Betty Davis um, and her daughter, who are both like witches, get forced into the body of a cat to kind of contain them. And the scene is essentially... um, Betty Davis's daughter falling over and her head spinning on the ground as she's being forced into the cat. And every time the head spins, there's a different face on it. So there would be like this really grotesque monstrous face. And then it would be Betty Davis's face, then the daughter's face, then the face of a cat. And it's just spinning on the ground. Um, all the while there are these like crazy vines, you know, wrapped all over her. It's like a really kind of not so crazy scene, slightly tacky, but like (laughs) as, as like a one and a half year old, like not even two year old seeing that it was really like, 
the the image really really stuck in my head but not in a way that frightened me so much as it was a way that really fascinated me and at that point I was way too young to to I, I had never felt those feelings of like being different or being the outsider but right. still I was I was fascinated by it but you know for a uh, a budding spooky kid what better foundations like literally the baptism of Betty yeah, Davis you uh, know fully it was it was kind of and it's it was her last film like the bitch left production because she hated the movie so she's only <laughs> in it for like 15 minutes and there was also something about this old glamorous powerful woman like smoking a cigarette in her diamond jewelry you know in, a, in this big chair in the film and one of my favorite lines from the film is uh, she says call me mom and I love that line so much. And it always, it stuck with me. I don't know. I feel like that film, seeing that at that age in that moment kind of formed the basis for what would eventually be, you know, my interests and in my drag, you know, glamorous women, witches, horror, all that shit. So let's talk about that. I mean, I know that like, your your whole career, uh, you, you are both a filmmaker and a drag performer, mm-hmm. uh, but... The roots, of, as you're saying, began at one and a half, two years old yeah. of your interest in horror. And so I, I'm assuming that you grew up and as as you said, like in high school, you started watching these movies and like really internalizing and making the connection between the outsider. But what was the moment where you realized, I want to be more than a passive fan of this? I want to make movies or I want to become the characters I idolize. Um, okay, funny enough, 12 because okay. 12 was when I started doing Haunted Houses and so in doing Haunted Houses I've started acting in them and so right off the bat I got to embody a lot of really wicked and, and frightening characters and the Haunted Houses I did were in Baja California, Mexicali um, and so the style of haunt there is actually it's it's very beautiful I mean they're very frightening and very disturbing and they touch on on um, on subjects that most I feel most people won't touch on like very very dark subjects you know we would um, often do houses that had themes of like rape, themes of um, abuse, just really, really dark stuff. But they were very beautiful in, in the way that they were cultivated. They were very theatrical. They were very well written out. They mm-hmm. were very um, unique. Like every year we would write out the story. We would design the characters. We would kind of build it from the ground up. It wasn't a house where you just walk through and things pop out at you and scare you. It was very much a story. Oh, I love that. Um, and they were also different in that haunts in the U.S. are like very labyrinthy. You just it's like a constant walkthrough, whereas our haunts were often set up in spaces like actual houses or actual places that were very old and had history to them. And so it, you, it would be groups would go in at a time and the actual characters are the people that lead you through the rooms and through the haunt. And you see scenes unfold within a room. You're not just constantly walking. You're kind of living this experience within this space. Um, and funny enough, it was uh, very heavily queer and a lot of the people that joined, uh, you know, a lot of the people that were in those projects were, were very, very queer, funny enough, now that I think about it. Well, I bet it was probably an outlet for people who didn't really have a place that they felt they could express themselves. Oh, no, it was. And it was such a highly creative, highly inviting environment. And, you know, um, I've never experienced haunt like like that anywhere else in the world that, I, that I've been able to experience haunted houses. But when I was 12, I, I started doing those like as an actor and I was able to embody a lot of really unique um, characters that were very well written for for a haunt character, you know, where usually I find in most haunts, they'll be like, you're a spooky guy, number six, here's your costume, this is the closet you jump out of, you know, 10,000 times a night. Right. Whereas there, it was a full 
experience. It was a full script that was given to you. It was, it was, you know, a full set of cues and actions that you had to do to interact with the crowd or move them or, or do things to them or separate them or do all kinds of shit. Um, which was really, really amazing to be able to embody characters like that, that I so identified with in films. Right. Um, and, and it was an outlet for a lot of anguish and a lot of emotions especially when I was really young and and to this day when I still do haunt here and there like when I visit home and I'm like I'm just gonna jump in and do a character tonight um it's crazy how many emotions do get filtered through and into those characters when you when you play them because they are very troubled very troubled characters that I think face a lot of the issues that that we as queer people you know face and so I got to do that when I was 12 and by the time I was 20 I was I was writing and directing haunted houses so right off the bat I didn't know I was going to do it professionally but right off the bat I I jumped on the opportunity to be able to create horror in some way shape or form I love that and I think this would be a good opportunity to talk about uh your short film uh boy in a dress oh yeah oh my god I haven't seen that one in a minute (laughs) because it is really uh all about your personal journey uh, and it's oh, sort of yeah. I can see how it ties into this moment because here you're 12 you're performing in a haunted house and there's a, there is a story that you tell in that short about how you have an early memory of being told that pink was for girls and that oh, blue was yeah. for boys and it's um, a big one and how pivotal that was for you mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm kind of curious because uh, you know, you're, here's a moment. You're 12. Uh, you are leaning heavily into theater with the with very dark themes, mm-hmm. and you're already saying it that like you know f- from an early point there there was a catharsis to that, and there there is a narrative uh, in your short about how you always felt the outsider and how expression and the things that you wore and, and uh, the things that you created were sort of always at odds with the world yeah. that you were living in. <laughs> Even when my fashions were absolutely terrible, they were just so outlandish. People just couldn't process it in the place where I was living. And uh, you, you you said there was a, oh, a while where your parents struggled with, with this. Uh, it, or it, was that it correct from the read that yeah, I got from film? You know what? There was always... Here's the thing. I, my, my parents are absolutely amazing and they're amazing in that they've been able to very quickly adapt right so the struggle was always there but it was always there because i was constantly pushing it further and further and further so um they kind of grew with me as i became more and more outlandish and kind of extreme and queer in my presentation so the struggle was always there but it was always a positive struggle because it was always a struggle about them learning to understand where I was coming from and they were great in that they were willing to listen and and learn and they did and now they're at drag con every year and going to nightgowns and doing all the gay things I love that uh so tell me a little bit about the progression from the haunted house the the boy who was told that pink wasn't good to sort of the outlandish high, high school outfits that led to drag like what what was the like kind of evolution there oh man you know i think the evolution was actually heavily in the characters that i portrayed because initially the characters i was portraying in haunts were male characters or like younger male characters and as time went on like around i was 15 haunted houses was when i was finally allowed to play with gender through playing this characters mm-hmm. and it It was a safer transition because I wasn't so heavily judged because they were horror characters. They were scary. They were meant to frighten people. So because there was still that very like hardcore and like theatrical working element to it, um, people didn't come for me as much or didn't think it was as weird because I was just playing a scary character that was scaring people, you know. But 
in my own way, I finally got to play with gender and with femininity very heavily, despite how frightening it was. There were times when no matter how how scary I looked, there was still an element of beauty to it that I could find, you know, like the really long hair or wearing the corsets or like wearing the heels, like those elements um, for me still brought it to a place of beauty, despite how frightening it was. And I think that is largely where I fell in love with the juxtaposition of, mm-hmm. of really, really frightening or disturbing elements or, or content um, melded or like, wedded together with with something that's very um sort of beautiful you know sort of aesthetically attractive and and digestible and I think it's a way to also for me it's been a way to reach a much a much larger audience and also to get people to get where I'm coming from because oftentimes the stuff that I I do do it is very frightening and it puts people off so for me even at a young age being presented in a way that was at least aesthetically pleasing um made it palatable for people. What I really like is that, uh, you know, I always say that drag characters are are born. There's always like a moment where they kind of take form. They are a separate personality in their way. Mm -hmm. And in a way, when you look at at, uh, drag characters who have really made an impact and their genesis, there's always something about it that just so makes sense. Like Mm -hmm. Joshua Grinnell became Peaches Christ because of a movie that they were making in college. Peaches was literally born in the movies. Mm -hmm. And there is a narrative based on what you just said, where we can say that Vander was born in a haunted house. She was born in a haunted house. Oh my God. I never thought of that. That's actually very kind of poetic. I was very, I was born, you know, Vander was born in a haunted house. It may not be the look. It may not be exactly what I, what I create now, but that same feeling of, of, feeling feminine and beautiful but also frightening that feeling was born inside a haunted house when i was 15 years old and i love that so tell me about that that birth the birth of of vander from the haunted house and when you finally like created vander what was that moment okay so the birth of of vander in the haunted house i I guess i shouldn't say the birth of vander but the birth of that feeling that feeling that that became vander over time or evolved into vander over time that feeling happened when I was 15 and we were specifically doing an event. We would oftentimes go to public spaces and just fucking scare people and pass out flyers because like it's Mexico and you can do that and not right. get sued. Um, and there was this one day where I just didn't have a character. I didn't have a look. I didn't have um, what I needed with me. But someone had recently donated a bunch of clothes to me that I would often use to recycle and create drag. Um, I'm not drag costumes, sorry. Um, haunted house costumes. Mm-hmm. And there just happened to be this like negligee in there. And at the time I had really, really long hair, like really long, like down to my ass long. Um, and I was just like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to do like a, a girl character. And it's like, it's improvised. It's all improv in a public space. I don't have to learn lines or do anything crazy inside a haunt. I'm just going to do this. Um, and funny enough, a lot of the elements of Vander were actually in that character, now that I think about it, there was like a Victorian heel. There was like the really long hair. Um, I am very fortunate to be blessed with a large forehead. So even the, the big forehead was there. Um, and that was the first time I went out into a public space with my hair down in a fucking negligee looking real fucking scary. I had my eyes completely white out. My mouth was completely blacked out with black dye. Um, and the makeup was just really horrifying, but I still felt really cunty. I don't know. There's something that (laughs) happens when you finally put on those fucking heels and that dress, like something, you know, that's been internalized for so long, finally is let out. 
And that was that was like the birth of of Vander essentially, or, or what would eventually become Vander. Right. And how that evolved, I mean, I think for me, the catalyst to finally pursuing drag and finally naming Vander um, was when I moved to L.A. Because I lived in a place where drag didn't exist. I mean, it, it did, but it was so, so, so hard to come by. It was in some dingy club with like two or three performers in a part of town that was really not safe, you know. Right. Um, and so I just I never got to experience drag in in nightlife because it was so hard to access and and the drag that there was because it was so limited was I hate to say it but it was pretty bad you know like it it wasn't very and I'm not talking about aesthetically like I'm not saying they weren't fishy they just it was just bad there wasn't really quality drag to be found now have you performed drag in Mexico since like Vander has taken off or no I I haven't and for the same reason there there isn't really a proper space Mm -hmm. To do it, I mean, maybe a club here or there, but really the the crowd isn't there for it. They don't quite get it. There's just not. There's the people just aren't educated in in the in the beauty and the fa- the fascinating art form of drag. They just don't get it there. They don't appreciate it. Well, you mentioned the naming of Vander, and I anytime I have a queen on, I always ask them how they chose their drag name. Oh, I so, love this question. So tell me about how uh, Vander became Vander, well, the, the name. Okay, I love this question. So when I started doing drag, of course, at this point, I had been doing horror, like haunted house drag since I was 12, um, and transitioned into female characters when I was 15. But really, I had never quite had the opportunity to experience drag I my my honestly my first massive exposure to to drag is like something you could do as a career right was really RuPaul's Drag Race you know I know a lot of fans are going to probably cringe at that but that that's the reality of it that was my first exposure to it was RuPaul's Drag Race and being like oh shit like you can actually do this as a job as a job yeah. like and that's really amazing um and so when I moved to LA for me that was the catalyst to finally say I'm going to pursue this because I can and because I, I I felt like I had been doing haunt and theater for so many years. I was like, I know I can do the hair. I know I can do the costumes. Right. I know I can learn how to do the makeup. I know I can perform like and I love doing all of those things um, synchronized at one time. So like, why the fuck not? Right. It just seemed like the right thing to do. And it felt right. Um, and so when I finally started diving into drag, I told myself because the the queens I met when I wanted to start. So many of them were, I, I got the feeling, and a lot of them aren't doing drag anymore, and I got the vibe that, that a lot of them were doing it because they wanted to be on Drag Race, or they wanted to be on a big show, or they wanted to, they wanted this kind of massive fame and exposure, right. and I always told myself that if I was going to do drag, I was going to do it because I loved it, and anything, any great experiences or opportunities that came out of it, I would fully, you know, take hold of and, and take advantage of, but I wasn't going to do drag specifically because I wanted to be famous or specifically because I wanted to be on TV. I wanted to do drag because it was something I really loved and I I actually wanted to do for real. Um, And so for me, part of that was before I do drag, like I have to look at my history. Yeah. So I went online and just looked up, you know, all kinds of drag from around the world. I, I looked up drag history and drag queens from, you know, way back when to like the twenties and thirties, forties, fifties, and you know, how drag evolved over time to become what it is now. And one of the Queens that I specifically fell in love with and who I heavily was inspired by when I was starting drag, her name was Barbette. She was like a twenties and thirties, a vaudeville queen who was a trapeze. But what I loved about Barbette, um, was that she never advertised her show as, 
a drag queen doing trapeze. It was just Barbette the trapeze most of the time. Sure. And her look was stunning. She was, like, tall and slender and wore the really tight, like, short, like, really dark um, finger waves with a really dark lip and a dark eye, but, like, pale and just these massive, like, feathered and beaded costumes, just, like, 1920s glamour tea down to the max. Um but what was so great about her was that she would do, especially this is a time where drag queens are only successful if they are passing as women. That is the only drag that is sellable to a heteronormative audience at this point in time. Right. That's the only thing they will buy is, you know, the magic of a man that transforms into a, a full-fledged woman head to toe. Um, and so Barbette could do that, but... Her whole gist was tricking people into thinking that she was actually a woman through her flyers and through her show. And at the end of her trapeze show, um, walking to the foot of the stage, taking her bow and then ripping off her wig and like flexing her arms in like full man with a with a with a beat. And I I like when I f- first found out about her and all, all of that stuff that she did, I thought she was just so fucking punk rock and crazy for the time frame in which she was living in. And the fact that she was able to. Uh, commercialize her drag and still kind of end her show with with a great big fuck you like I've I've actually been around this whole time I don't know something about it I thought was just I just think that's so amazing that she was able to do that in the time frame that she did I thought it was so true to the spirit of drag which is that it's illusion and being able to trick an audience with with her illusion and be like just kidding right um I love that. I thought it was punk rock as fuck. And so she was my biggest inspiration. And anyway, to circle back to your question about where I got my drag name, Arbet's birth name, her boy name uh, was Vander Clyde. Um, And so I took Vander um, as my as my drag name because I always wanted to carry that that spirit of drag with me everywhere I went. Well, love that. And I feel like listeners got a good history lesson. Yeah. Go look up Arbet. Yeah. History lesson of, of drag. Uh, and so you moved to LA. Vander is now on the scene, mm-hmm. and uh, this is around the time that you make "Boy in a Dress" as well, right? Yeah, I made "Boy in a Dress" um, maybe like half a half a year to a year before Dragula happened. I had only been doing drag um, for a couple months when I when I did "Boy in a Dress." Yeah, and I think you know, for people who are drag fans who may know you primarily for Dragula. Uh, I don't know, you know, some people may not be aware that you are a full-fledged filmmaker who has made projects. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, tell me a little bit before we dig into Boy in a Dress and, and then, of course, Dragula, which we, you know, the, everyone's going to want to know about. Drag. Uh, tell me a little bit about the, the parallel journey of becoming a filmmaker, or have you always viewed them as part of the same track? Um, it's funny. I, I feel like everything I do at some point has been part of the same track and it all fledged from haunted houses and just making shit look like gold, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, for me, becoming a filmmaker, funny enough, I have to mention two of my best, best, best friends, like their family back home, Damaris Rubio and Carlos Cordova. They're, um, um, Damaris is the producer of Find a Story, executive producer of Find a Story Entertainment, and Carlos is the director of Find a Story Entertainment. And that's the entertainment company that I started doing haunts with. Mm-hmm. Um, and we eventually made Tres Versos. And honestly, my filmmaking was born out of Damaris always pushing me because the thing was, we were doing haunts at at this point, at this, I was 19, uh, actually 18 when the suggestion first came up and I had been directing and writing them at this point. And Damaris told me like, Hey, like, why don't you write 
a short and I'll produce it for you. Right. And I was just like, I don't know. Like, I've never done anything film. I have no experience with any of that. I don't know. I don't know. This This went on for like a year of that is like bugging me and bugging me. Like, write something. I'll produce it for you. Like, I'll give you what you need. I'll give you the tools and the palette to create it. Just write something. I was like, fine. After a year, she convinced me. I wrote Tres Versos in like three days. Um, I have to be honest and say that I wasn't planning for it to be huge. I honestly wasn't treating it as seriously as Damaris was. Right. And I think that's a testament to Damaris' intuition. And she she knew that there was potential to create something, you know, if the three of us, Carlos, Damaris, and me just made it happen. And so I gave her the script and it snowballed. It snowballed. Um, obviously, looking back on it, there's a lot I wish I could change and make better about it. But right. I feel like there's no denying that for the first short film of someone who's 19, Damari has made it huge and she made it a legit deal. Like we had a full casting, we had multiple locations, we had massive set dressing and costuming and wigs and and I'm, it's a project I'm very, very, very proud of. And I think it's a wonderful short. Uh, I've, I've seen it, and it is available to watch online, right? It is. It is on YouTube. Tres Versos is like the number three, and then V-E-R-S-O-S. Uh, it's it's uh, really well curated atmospheric horror. I think that uh, it looks great. It definitely, if you're a fan of the Vander aesthetic, it's there. Uh-huh. Uh, what I think is remarkable is that you made it at 19 years old. That's I insane. Was, I was 19, and... Um, Honestly, I have to give so much credit to the Maris and Carlos because they pushed me to to do it. And it wasn't until I did that that it, that that was that was the catharsis for me of like, oh, like I could this this is this looks good. Like I like this. I could do this. I could do this for a living. I really enjoyed doing it. Right. Um. Again, it, very much like drag, it was curating and creating something from the ground up and telling a story through it. And I think a lot of my drag performances, um, because of doing film before doing drag, a lot of my drag performances kind of. Um, follow the path of a narrative when when I perform. I, I love to tell a, a little three four minute story through through my numbers. I love that. Now, is that difficult in certain venues? It's it's funny. I was just thinking about this yesterday. It is very difficult. It's very difficult sometimes in certain parts of town where, um, I mean, let's be real. In a place with where everybody's dancing and getting drunk and just trying to get fucked, like no one's interesting. And you know, <laughs> seeing me do this really emotional number to a cover of of Creep, where I I destroy my drag, you know, no one's really interested in it. But then there are spaces where it's so appreciated and it flourishes, and that's what makes it worth it. Spaces like Queen Kong here in LA, um, people are so down to see all kinds of drag, and it's amazing. They go there for the drag. Places like Nightgowns, like Sasha Valour's Nightgowns in, right. in New York, which now we're very lucky to be touring in, in different cities and, and countries. Um, that's a show where people show up for the drag. And so um, I feel like if you're going into drag, you just have to know what audience you're catering to and what they're willing to digest and what they're not willing to to digest and, and kind of gauge around that. And that's why I don't really do, for example, brunch shows. Um, don't get me wrong. I would love to do a brunch show, but my numbers just don't go over well. And yeah. I, I don't really, no disrespect to people who do like top 40, like dance numbers or anything like that, but that's just not what I'm looking to, to right. do. And I'm just not looking to adapt my drag into that just to do a show at, you know, fucking 1, a, 1 p.m. in the afternoon. <laughs> 
don't make me sad over my omelet. <laughs> Although, what if we started a brunch show called Sad Omelets? Sad Omelets? <laughs> we would, oh my God. Uh, we would have to bring in Patty, Slip, uh, Patty Spliff from um, New York, who does sad songs in New York, which is a show all about sad songs. But Sad Omelets. Yeah, I like it. Down. I would go. Um. So, yeah, so you move here, you make Boy in a Dress, mm-hmm. and then how long after that is Dracula? Honestly, I think it was only, okay, if I'm getting the timeline right, timeline right, I think it was six months, because I think I had been doing drag for about a year when I did Boy in a Dress, and when I did Dragula, I had been going for about a year and a half. Right. So, yeah, about six months after Boy in a Dress. Now, br- before we leap into Dragula, I do have to ask, because... Boy in a Dress is narratively so different than Tres Versos. Mm-hmm. What was the decision to kind of like be that vulnerable, to tell, to like show this side of yourself? I think it was because I made Tres Versos, because I made Tres Versos, one of the things I, I wish I had maybe done differently about Tres Versos is that while I do think it's a very, very fun story, I don't necessarily think it's a story that people can connect with on a personal level. Mm-hmm. And I find that all of my most powerful work and all the work of other people that I find very powerful is work that I've been able to emotionally connect with. And so from that point forward, I kind of vowed to kind of try my best to exclusively create art and create content that I felt I could personally relate to and that other people could too. And, and that in that way would be very powerful. And that's what I try to do with, with my drag as well. I try to create um, work that people can, can relate to on at an emotional level. And I find that that's usually where I, I have the most success. Cool. So we're at this point, you've made two short films that have uh, gotten great attention you're really curating your drag character, a character that was born out of haunted houses. And all of a sudden you hear a call for a show uh-huh. that's looking for a drag monster. Uh-huh. Tell me about that. Okay. Shit the diaper. Like <laughs> that was a really daunting, frightening experience. And a lot of people are just like, oh, you look so unbothered. Like you just soared through it. Well, that's how it comes across on TV, but you don't see like those, you know, 20 minutes before I had to leave my apartment where I'm still gluing stones and shit to a costume, like silently crying to myself in my half painted face. Right. Um, what a fucking amazing experience. What a fucking scary experience. Can I cuss on this show? Yes. Fabulous. <laughs> What was funny is right before I came to uh, the show today to record, I was looking at Twitter and some guy, Cameron Sheets, at Cameron Sheets, you have made it onto Dead for Filth today. (laughs) He tweeted, my kink is when people ask if they can cuss on podcasts. And I laughed, I said, because invariably it happens on every episode. But yeah, we're an R-rated horror podcast. You can say whatever the hell you want. Fabulous. (laughs) Yeah, it was a really fucking scary experience. Um... Oh, but back to it. What was your question? Just how the, you know, for someone who had horror in the veins of your drag Mm -hmm. to suddenly hear this call for a horror drag show competition, you must have just known this was for you. I mean, everybody assumes that. I didn't. Here's the thing. When you're going up again, here's, I mean... Now I feel like I if, like if I went into the competition now I would be so much more confident because of the experience I've had. But at, at this point, I'd been doing drag for a year and a half. Most of my experience was in film. At this point, no one had paid me to do drag. No one had given have, had given me a paid booking. The gigs I did get were usually on on the smaller end. Here and there, I would get a nice gig. But again, um, I was in a scene where I didn't feel like I was take being taken seriously 
because I was so new. Right. And and you know how it is in L.A. Like when you move here, like the credits don't transfer. Like it, you have to start from the ground up when you move to a big city like L.A. Right. And so just no one really took me seriously because I was so new on the scene. Um, and right off the bat, going up against people like Ursula Major, fucking Melissa B. Fierce, like some of the most psychotic crazy terrorist drag bitches in Los Angeles. It was really daunting. I honestly didn't think I I remember telling Pincher like if I make it to episode three, I'm I'll be more than happy. If I make it episode two, I'll be happy. As long as I don't go home first. That was right. my that was my thing. Um I didn't think I was going to make it as far as I did. And I didn't have that moment where I felt I could reach it until episode three in the desert when I was in the camper, fucking sweaty as shit, exhausted, taking off my makeup and pulling out my contacts. Um, I had just done the brain eating thing and I felt like I killed it with the brain eating thing. And I had had like a a good running streak up until that point. Um, And that was the moment when I actually kind of realized like, oh, like I could make it to the end. Um, I didn't think I would when I first started the competition. Well, not only did you make it to the end, you won the whole damn thing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Never in a million years, honestly. And it's been amazing everything that's come out of out of the show and all the queens and all the success for the queens and the boulets that has come out of the show well when i had uh, both bitch pudding on and the boulets on we talked about uh you know how reality television is curated and things mm-hmm. are, things are edited and also things that like because of the structure of a competition you get to see but like maybe you didn't have to participate in mm-hmm. is there any specific challenge that you have witnessed? Because I know that you have gone on to work on the second season. Yeah, I did production design for the second season. Uh, so you've been you've really been party to like the the rise of Dragula. Mm-hmm. Um, but has there been anything that has happened on the show that you think to yourself, "Wow, if I was competing and this was my challenge, I wouldn't be able to do, or I just don't want to do that." Like you know, has there ever been anything that you're like, mm, "Pause." Um, I remember for season two when we first went over the list of exterminations, we were having a meeting, um, and this was before we were filming. We were going through the exterminations. I remember there were a couple that I was like. There was never one that I thought, like, I could never do that. There were just a couple that I was just like, ugh, like, I really would not enjoy that. Like, I guess in my season, it was probably the the mud wrestling one. Like, I wouldn't shy away from that. I feel like I could kill that, but... It's just like, ugh, like to be in, covered in mud and drag, like I'd rather just be in a fucking coffin or be eating brains, like something about the mud, just like I didn't want to do it. Um, but there was never anything that I was like scared of necessarily, just like, ugh, like I would hate to do that. You're like, I'll eat brains, I just don't want to get dirty. <laughs> <laughs> Fully, where's my napkin? Uh, and was there ever a moment that didn't make it to air that you wish had? Um, there were so many, my God. I'm trying to think of the ones I can actually talk about. I mean, one thing I, I really wish, and it was just like, it wasn't so much us. It was, it was more than network thought it was a little too much. And I understand for some people it could be a little too much during the Gothic brides episode of season two. Um, I, I would, th- I would hope most of the fans caught this, but, uh, bitch pudding was doing John Benet Ramsey on her wedding day. And so that's why she has that, like the white poofy shorter dress and she has the baby's breath and her blonde hair and she has the strangulation marks. Um, and it's mentioned in the episode, it's mentioned by the judges, by bitch, like the name John Benet Ramsey is, is said on the show many times. Um, but the network thought it was a little bit too far. So all of that was cut out. So unless you really 
look at the details in her look and know about, you know, the story of John Bonet Ramsey. I feel like a lot of people didn't catch that. And I wish that could have made it in there because that's, you know, right. One of those real risque <laughs> like decisions that pisses people off. But I, I also think it was very drag and punk rock and I really wish it would have made it. No, definitely a button pusher. And I can see it on both sides. Mm-hmm. Like I, I understand that. But. Yeah, I'm very anti-censorship, but I also understand that people have businesses to run. Yeah. yeah. But uh, so, you know, I think it, it probably isn't a far leap to say that Dragula did change your life. Oh my God, it changed my life. It changed the life of Many drag queens, even people who weren't on the show, mm-hmm. one thing that really um, struck me, um, like it hit me in the chest and I was like, I it got me a little bit emotional when I was touring uh, the Midwest with Hard Candy. Um, a lot of the queens from the Midwest, which is like, it's the Bible belt. Right. And a lot of the drag that is successful there in the clubs is very beautiful drag or it's pageant drag. Um, there's not a lot of room for the weirdos and the queerdos to get on a stage and perform. And one of the one of the comments I got from multiple queens from multiple cities in the Midwest was that, you know, a lot of these spooky queens would come up to me and be like, I didn't start getting booked in my city until Dragula came out because no one here took this kind of drag seriously until the show was on this platform. And these queens, you know, queens like you started traveling and and, um, promoters and other queens who book shows started seeing the value in it and started seeing that people wanted to see that kind of drag. And so... Even though I think maybe a lot of these producers are only booking spooky queens because they see a profit in it now that they didn't see before. I think there's something to be said in that the show is starting to legitimize this kind of drag for a lot of people across the U.S. And so for me, it was very satisfying to see Queen saying, I'm getting paid now because of the show, even though I wasn't even on the show. Right. Well, and I think it's good, too, because you're right. Like, regardless of, like, the financial reason of a venue, it's providing a platform for people mm-hmm. who maybe weren't getting the opportunity before. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned how you've been hearing these kind of testimonials because you've been traveling. And that's something I wanted mm-hmm. to ask you about, because uh, coming from having only done drag for about a year and a half to the show that all of a sudden you're on the road and you get to experience things. Uh, and I know that you recently were in Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh Tell me about life on the road and like some of the things that you've encountered. Have there been anything like, has there been anything really crazy like out there in the world for Vander? Oh, you know what? When you're brought up from age 12 in the world of haunted houses, you see some shit. So (laughs) I feel like, uh, I just, I don't know. I don't know if I've seen anything that crazy. I you know what it is? I probably have. I think I'm just very desensitized to a lot of this crazy shit at this point. Right. I won't say I've seen it all, but I've seen most of it at this point. So, um, honestly for me, it's just been a pleasure meeting other queer scenes in other cities and meeting other Queens, but specifically for me, meeting the queer scenes and seeing how people, you know, especially people like us, like the weirdos and the weirdos navigate social spaces and clubs and, and other places. Right. It's really fascinating. And also you think, you know, drag until you get to trap. Like you, I thought I was open-minded about drag until I started to travel. And you really get to see some of the weirdest fucked up kookiest drag in the goddamn world. And it's really satisfying to see weirdos succeeding in the world. 
Well, that's the one thing that I thought was really cool about uh, the introduction of Drag Race Thailand is we got to see a whole different kind of drag from Asia. Mm-hmm. And I kind of want drag competition shows from all over the world so I can see, like, what's going on. And I think know, that would be really interesting. And I have to say, uh, in regards to Drag Race Thailand, I felt like Drag Race Thailand, the best moments in that show happened when the girls were doing their drag. Because there were moments where I felt like they some of the girls definitely pushed for like a very Western, like American drag with like the Marcel waves and like the, you know, the gowns and all that. And it's just like, I had the most fun watching that show when they just did their kind of like weird Thailand kind of fucked up janky drag. That's kind of like kooky. I don't know. I thought that was so much more satisfying than seeing like their interpretation of of Western drag. And there are other shows like I have to plug this one because it's so good. La Mas Draga. And it's from Mexico City. And it's kind of, I mean, it fully acknowledges it, that it kind of took the idea of RuPaul's Drag Race, but was created to um, show Mexican drag because there isn't a major platform for Mexican drag. I'm from there and I don't know most of the queens from from there, you know? Yeah. Um, and so La Mas Draga, it's on YouTube and it actually has a lot of really great Mexican drag on it. And it's really funny. Unfortunately, it doesn't have subtitles yet, but you know, Spanish, check it out or like ask them for subtitles. I'm sure they'll put them up if enough people ask. Yeah, I think that's really cool and definitely worth uh, checking out. Um, and you did allude to something a little earlier that I had written down that I wanted to talk to you about. And that's nightgowns. Yeah, uh, because nightgowns is uh, a tour that you've been on, uh, which is sort of more of a higher art drag show that yeah. was curated by Sasha Velour. And yeah. you're, you're part of the regular company right now that's mm-hmm. going around. So uh, tell us a little bit about nightgowns, because I feel like that's also a way a lot of listeners out there in the world might get a chance to see you right now. Okay, Nightgowns is a very, very... Here's the thing. I feel like there are, for me, two very special shows in the U.S., and those are primarily Nightgowns and Queen Kong. Mm -hmm. Um, They are spaces that have been curated by queer people for queer people, exclusively for queer performance. And so you see a lot of really beautiful beautiful performance come through these shows um so nightgowns uh started in new york by sasha velour and she started it uh, like about a year um, she started a minute before she actually got on the race um and obviously because of her success on drag race the show has now catapulted and uh i started i became part of the cast when it was when we were doing it in new york monthly which it still happens monthly but then we did it in la and then we did it in london and now i can't say what other cities are being secured but it's it's going you know across the country and international but nightgowns um right off the bat night uh, i remember what was it? i think la sasha la nightgown sasha started by saying um part of the reason she named it nightgowns was because a nightgown is the most unflattering unglamorous kind of gown that you can possibly wear but right. at the same time it's uh, a, a nightgown is like the uniform of of the dreamers and uh, nightgowns is a, sp- is a place for people to dream mm-hmm. um and so that's Queen Kong and, and Nightgowns are my favorite shows to do because it's the shows where I'm fully allowed to do anything, anything I want. And so long as it's coming from an honest place, that audience adores, adores drag. And listening to you talk over the course of this episode, one of the things that is abundantly clear is how important it is to you for uh 
acceptance in the queer community mm-hmm. and for queer people to have visibility mm-hmm. and have a place and have have a community. And uh, at the top of the episode, I had mentioned that it's your birthday, mm-hmm. and um, you were doing something special for your birthday. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and I want you to tell us a little bit about that. Oh yeah, so you know. Um, I love this new feature on Facebook where you can set up a fundraiser for your birthday. And if you're going through one of the nonprofits or organizations that ha- that are like official or approved through Facebook, which the, uh, and pretty much all of the like official or legit organizations are already on there. Mm-hmm. Um, Facebook doesn't actually take a fee of the money or anything. So it goes straight to the or- these organizations. And so I set up a birthday fundraiser for Trans Lifeline, which is a slightly newer organization that is uh, staffed by transgender people for transgender people with the objective of ending trans uh, suicide, which if I'm getting the statistics correct... Um, trans people are I think like 44 times more likely or something like that to to attempt suicide um so suicide rates in the trans community are just like astronomical and this is the first from my understanding exclusively trans light uh hotline mm-hmm. um and so I set up a fundraiser for them because they do rely on da- on donations to keep the the hotline uh running up and running uh and so the objective was a thousand and I luckily made the uh, the goal, but uh, unfortunately, by the time this comes out, the fundraiser will be closed. But uh, luckily, uh, I still posted on my Instagram this morning, like made the goal. But hey, girl, you still got thirty eight hours to right. donate, and more donations kept uh, coming now, in. Now, for listeners who uh, would like to donate, still past the close of your mm-hmm. your specific charity, can they just go to the Trans oh Lifeline? God, absolutely, site? yeah. If you go to translifeline.org, dot uh, org, you can donate uh, there for sure. And please do do it for Vander. Yay. Yes. Do it for trans people. Do it for your trans bros and sis. Love that. Uh, well, one of the functions of Dead for Filth, as we know, is it is a celebration of horror movies. And as someone who was literally born watching one, it seems, uh-huh. uh, <laughs> I have to ask, as I ask every guest, uh, what have you seen recently that inspires you? Recently that inspires me? I recently fell re-inspired by an artist that I've always loved but for whatever reason had never kind of thought to bring him into my drag which is feels so stupid now but Stephen Gamble Stephen Gamble was the illustrator that created all of the artwork for the scary stories to tell in the dark book series that were banned from schools in the early 2000s because the the illustrations were I mean Truth be told, they're they're very, very, very disturbing mm-hmm. illustrations, and I'm still so giddy that they somehow managed to slip those into elementary schools because that's where I got my hands on them. Uh, very, very disturbing black and white kind of pencil and charcoal drawings, uh, and I love them. And so I'm kind of feeling like re-inspired by them and want to bring some of those like textures into into my drag. Um, what else? Well, I feel like I'm constantly inspired by a lot of the people I work with. Like I recently have had the chance to work more often with Landon Sider Mm -hmm. and Landon's artistry head to toe is so phenomenal. If you don't know Landon Sider, uh, he's a drag queen, a drag king from uh, Los Angeles. Breathtaking artistry. Um, So I've, you know, I feel like when I work with people like Landon, I feel re-inspired to like kick into like full gear like full fire you know mode and 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 create drag um who else have i seen any films recently 
See, that's the unfortunate part of traveling. I don't get to see movies as much anymore. <laughs> yeah, and it's generally frowned upon to watch like R-rated horror movies on a plane, as I have learned multiple times. Really? Oh my god, I can't tell you how many times I've started watching a movie on a plane and like a werewolf like rips someone's face off and the lady next to me is scandalized. It, n- it never stops me from watching the movie. Oh fuck her! But <laughs> I, I do try and like be a little more like. I, I read the room. I like look around. I'm like, what's going on before I start watching something? You know? Oh, see, I'd be the one that if I see that little lady sitting next to me, I'm putting on the most gruesome film I can find on that plane. I started watching a movie on a plane uh, about a year ago where it wasn't even the violence, but like this couple started banging in the shower and I didn't had never seen the movie, so I didn't know. And like this lady next to me, like not only was into it, but I think she was like, into it. She's like, yeah. Oh, bless her heart. And I'm doing like, God's work. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That's the, actually funny enough. I can do horror and crazy stuff. Usually if I see a film that I want to watch, but I know it'll have sex in it on the plane, I won't only because it's awkward as fuck. It is awkward. It's yeah. so awkward. I mean, and I, I try and avoid that for plane, for plane purposes, but like sometimes you don't know what's in a movie because you haven't watched it. So it's, prob- <laughs> it's probably safer to just watch movies you know to, or something. Mm, I, <gasps> which, by the way, I think it's American Airlines has all about Eve, fully my tea. I watch that film every time I'm on that on that specific uh, airplane with that TV. Oh my gosh! They always have all about Eve. I love a Betty Davis bookend to the episode. Oh, <laughs> opening and closing with Betty Davis today. Absolutely. Uh, so, what's next in the world for you? So next is the Dragula UK tour, which is a split between. Uh, August uh, and September. So uh, we're doing, oh my God, so many cities I can't remember. But on my Instagram, on all my socials, on the Boulay socials, you can look up the uh, Dragula UK tour, which will be in London, will be in Cardiff, will be in uh, like, I think it's like eight or nine cities. So it's going to be a really fabulous time. And then we have the nightgowns dates coming up, which I can't reveal yet because they're still being secured down and all that jazz, all that business jazz. But, uh, you know, look out for nightgowns coming to your state or country. And then I'm writing my own feature, finally, with uh, my writing partner, Carlos, the director of uh, Finest Story Entertainment. We're finally writing our first uh, feature-length film to be shot in Spanish in Mexico. Yay! So there's that. So nightgowns, Dragula UK tour, writing my first film, and then just gigs, you know, sprinkled throughout I the love, U.S. love a good sprinkle. Well, you mentioned Instagram and how uh, people can keep track of your tour. So how, I guess we have to ask, how can people find you? Yep. All my socials are Vander Von Oz. So the Twitter, the Instagram, the Facebook, all of it you can find under Vander Von Odd. Well, Vander, uh, thank you for joining us today. <laughs> thank you for having me. Oh my gosh. The original drag super monster gracing our studio for the 40th episode. <laughs> And on your birthday. What a and celebratory day. Yeah. Going to go finish that dollhouse. Come help me glue shingles to that roof. There's at least a million. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what is more haunted than a dollhouse? Oh, uh, I should do a little a little Vander for my dollhouse. A little Vander born in uh, a little haunted house now. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll be looking for those photos soon. <sighs> this has been Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti. Yours always in glam and gore. Good night. And good luck.